0: Calls for new gun control in the wake of the Sacramento shooting, plus a conversation with Radley Balko on the killing of Amir Locke. That and more on this episode of the Weekly Reload Podcast.
1: I made the devil run. I gave him poison just for fun.
0: I had one... All right, welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to another episode of the Weekly Reload Podcast. I'm your host, Stephen Gutowski. I'm also the founder of the Reload.com, where you can. Head on over and check out our membership options today if you want to get exclusive access to uh, firearms journalism and analysis that you cannot find anywhere else on this planet. You would also get access to this podcast a day early and the opportunity to appear on the show in a member segment, which we actually have another one this week. We got a good streak of uh, of member segments going, which uh, you know I always enjoy because I like to learn a little bit more about the kind of people who are signing up for the reload and creating this new little community we've got going. But uh, this week we have um, Radley Balco, who is a uh, investigative reporter and columnist at the Washington Post. He's joining us. Welcome, Radley. Thank you so much for coming on. Can you just uh, tell people a little bit more about yourself in uh, your own words?
2: Uh, Sure. Uh, So yeah, I'm a columnist for the Washington Post. I'm an investigative reporter, um, both for the Post and other publications. Um, uh, I've written two books, uh, Rise of the Warrior Cop, which came out in 2013 and then we updated last year. Uh, And then um, The Cadaver King and the Country Dentist, uh, which is uh, kind of about death investigations and um, a forensic scandal in uh, in Mississippi that went on for about 20 years. Um, I am a libertarian, Uh, support gun rights, uh, maybe not to the extent uh, That a lot of uh, other gun rights supporters may, uh, but I do generally believe in the the Second Amendment and the right to you know defend yourself, uh, right to gun ownership. Um, Yeah, I used to work at the Cato Institute and Reason, uh, and uh, now I'm at the Washington
0: Post. You obviously focus quite a lot on the criminal justice system, policing, right? And there's clearly a number of ways that those issues intersect with gun rights in America, Um, and we actually have a very recent case that. Uh, we just had some news on this week, in fact, uh, out of Minneapolis um, with Amir Locke's shooting. Uh, the police officer involved in that case is not going to be charged. Can can you just give us just a little summation of what happened there and and why this, this officer isn't going to be charged?
2: Uh, yeah. So as I understand it, the police were looking for a suspect in a, a shooting. Um, they uh, obtained warrants to several residences of people who had some sort of connection to the suspect um amir no- alak amir was not the suspect right. uh, i believe the suspect was his cousin he was staying at his apartment uh and the police uh, conducted a, a no-knock raid on the apartment uh, or uh a, a legally a no-knock raid you know they claimed they knocked and announced as they were coming in but for, for the purposes of sort of anybody inside that's really no different than a no-knock raid uh, and Locke apparently reached for, according to body camera footage, reached for a gun as the police came in and they shot and killed him. Uh, again, he was not the suspect, was not suspected of any criminal activity whatsoever. He just happened to be in the wrong place at the wrong time. Um, you know, the officer wasn't charged because, and he probably, you know, he shouldn't have been because he, the officer saw a, uh, what he thought to be a suspect reaching for a gun. Uh, and usually what happens in these types of cases is the officers are excused because of, Uh, you know, the volatility of the situation, because uh, it's a highly sort of dynamic uh, environment with very little room for error. Uh, The problem, of course, is that the police created those dynamics. And, you know, if Amir Locke had shot and killed one of those officers, um, odds are pretty good that uh, he would, well, odds are pretty good he'd probably be dead. Uh, And if he had survived, he would probably be charged with some sort of crime. And so even though the police create the dynamic situation, the volatility in the, in, in these raids, uh, and even though the police sort of had the advantage of knowing that it's what's going to happen, and the police had the advantage of being armed and, and uh, uh, you know, wearing ballistics gear, and even though the tactics themselves are designed to sort of disorient and confuse people, when the police make the mistake in these raids, which clearly seems to be what happened here, uh, they're generally given the benefit of the doubt and let off, People on the receiving end of these raids, you know, I I got my my start in journalism uh, based on a a case by a a guy named Corey May, who was raided uh, and shot and killed a police officer, and you know, ended up serving ten years in prison, uh, including uh, about six years on death row. Um, So the people aren't given the same benefit of the doubt uh, during these raids, and so my my argument for a long time to the uh, gun rights community. Again, which I consider myself a member of, is that if you you know really value gun rights, you need to, we need to be uh, speaking out against these types of tactics, and, and that they should only be used in situations where somebody's life is in, at imminent risk. Um, to use these tactics for evidence gathering for investigation, uh, you know, in a country where I don't know what percentage of homes now own guns. Um, you know, there's going to be a lot of mistakes. There are going to be a lot of raids based on dirty information. And so a lot of innocent people are going to get caught up in all of this uh, and are going to be killed or or going to kill police officers and, and face criminal consequences for that. Yeah.
0: I mean, certainly the the Miraloc situation is obviously the most recent one that's garnered a lot of attention, uh, probably in large part because there was body, body cam footage of what happened. And right. So people can more objectively see exactly how that went down and... Give the idea that Amir Locke perhaps didn't realize what was happening when, when the police raided the home and it seemed like he didn't wake up immediately. Um, and, and, and then this, uh, series of events led to his death. And, uh, so the critique here is, I guess, um, from what you're saying, not necessarily that the police officer himself, who was the individual, uh, who actually fired the gun was doing anything that was, um, illegal or, um, even necessarily unreasonable. I mean, he had reason to fear for his life, given the gun involved. But right. the problem is the the tactic and this the setup and and yep. the way that it um, unfairly disadvantages regular Americans' um, rights. Is that, well, look, is I mean, that correct?
2: Looking, yeah. You 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 break into somebody's house while they're asleep. You know, uh, early in the morning or late at night, and you elicit. Um, a very primal reaction to people, right? As the fight or flight response kicks in. And if you're in your own home, flight isn't really an option. And so most people are going to, you know, if they have any kind of protection, uh, you know, if they're they're armed in any way, they're gonna reach for that arm, those arms to protect themselves. And, um, you know, I've seen this, I mean, I've been covering this issue for about 20 years and I've seen it over, I mean, the pile of of bodies just keeps growing, uh, people who've been killed in these situations. Um, It just happens over and over and over and over again. Um, And, you know, the interesting thing about it is, or kind of the outrageous part of this, I guess, is that, you know, nobody has ever really, nobody ever really considers, uh, these tactics, from a kind of a, a from the perspective of the people who might be inside these houses who are innocent, right? Um, when it, Joseph McNamara, who was a, a police chief in um, San Jose and uh, I believe Kansas City for a long time, but was a political conservative, um, worked for the um, uh, uh, the Hoover Institute uh, after he retired um, in, in uh, at Stanford. Um, you know, he talks about a conference once he held in Los Angeles about the use of SWAT tactics and no-knock rates to serve drug warrants. Uh, and one of the things I, I interviewed him for my first book, and he's passed away now, uh, but he he talked about this conference where he had—I can't remember everybody involved. He had like a district attorney, a police chief, a you know another high-ranking police officer, a judge, uh, and he he a city council member maybe. And he asked all of them, you know, who should make the decision on what types of when police use these kinds of forced entry tactics. And what he found was that nobody uh, who had the power to kind of restrict these tactics or to consider them from the perspective of anyone other than the SWAT team themselves was willing to say, this is when we should use them and this is when we shouldn't. Uh, And so it basically came down to basically the head of the SWAT team got to decide whether or not the SWAT team was going to be used. And, you know, if you are the head of a unit like that, you want to be used as often as possible, right? You want to be seen as useful. You want to be, you know, productive. You want to be seen as a vital part of the police department. Now that has changed in some departments, including Los Angeles, they now, there's a threat matrix that some of the larger city police departments go through when they decide what kinds, what types of tactics to use. But that's really only in a, you know uh, a handful of large cities. And in, in most parts of the country, in a lot of these small towns and, and counties, sheriffs that have their own SWAT teams, um, you know, the decision is really kind of more ha- ad hoc. And uh, you know, we've seen from surveys done by the ACLU by Peter Kraska, um, a criminologist at Eastern Kentucky. Um, that you know, somewhere between seventy-five and eighty percent of these types of forced entry tactics are done uh, to serve warrants uh, for drug crimes. Uh, and so, you know, you're, you're you're you've gone from using these types of tactics, this forced entry, that at one point were reserved for situations where someone was in the process of committing a violent crime. So you think, uh, you know, domestic violence situation, hostage taking, an active shooter, a bank robber. That's how this was primarily used until about the early to mid-80s, these, these types of tactics. Now they're primarily used to serve a warrant on someone who is still merely suspected of a nonviolent consensual crime, right? You're not, the person hasn't even, we don't, we're not even sure the person committed the crime yet, we're still investigating because that's the whole purpose of the search warrant. And so you're using these overwhelmingly violent tactics that are designed to sort of dis, to confuse and disorient people where there's very little margin for error and you're using them to investigate often sort of low-level drug crimes that are still in the investigative stage, and that's a, it's a massive shift in how governments have used that kind of force over the course, basically, of my lifetime. And there's never there was never any sort of discussion or debate about whether you know the, the cost benefit of using that kind of tactics. Never meant never mind kind of the more sort of profound civil liberties implications. Uh, and so that's you know that's the conversation I think that we've had really. Since Breonna Taylor and George Floyd, that um, that 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 you know, on a kind of a national level, we hadn't had until that point um, as this shift was taking place.
0: Yeah, and I think there's an extra layer of of conversation to be had in in regards to the gun rights implications here as well, because you know a no knock raid, uh, as as most people understand that term, is one where you have no warning that someone is breaking into your house or for what reason, or or you have no warning that they're with the police department. Um, and even, even in that situation, of course, somebody just yelling that they're with the police department is as they break down your right. door, uh, which, which happens
2: frequently. I mean, you know, I did just a story, a story, a video and story about that just about two days mm-hmm. ago that I, I retweeted. Um, that does happen fairly often. Yeah.
0: I mean, uh, it, it's sort of, I, I believe David French has talked about this to uh, When we, when we had him on on the podcast previously, but, uh, you know, it, it kind of erodes your your gun rights as well because, um, generally speaking, you know the castle doctrine, which we have in most most states, well, would would say that if someone is breaking into your home, uh, you have a right to defend yourself with your firearm. But these no knock raids create situations where, uh, you know, uh, that's not necessarily true, right? I mean, even even in right. situ- I believe there was a there was a case uh, a while back and. Uh, perhaps you can remember, recall the, the name of the person involved in this, but uh, the police raided the wrong home um, mm-hmm. and the person inside was armed and shot at the police and, and then was charged for that.
2: Uh, there's, I mean, I've doc- I've written about many cases like that. I would say, I, I don't know, I can't even, couldn't estimate over the years. I would say at least a dozen, probably a couple dozen. Um, but, but Corey May, the case I mentioned that, that I kind of got my journalism career started with, was one of those cases. This was a guy who was uh at home alone with his eighteen month old daughter. The police conducted a drug raid at twelve thirty in the morning. He lives at a duplex and on the other side of the duplex there was a known sort of drug dealer, but you know, Corey had no you know no affiliation with mm-hmm. him. But the police raided both sides, whether it was a mistake or they were just trying to be thorough or <laughs> who knows. Uh and Corey, you know, wakes up and, and this bedroom door flies open where his daughter's asleep on the couch or on the bed and he's on the floor, you know, holding a gun and he shoots and kills uh, the first officer in the door and then realizes they're police and immediately surrenders with bullets still left in the gun. And, you know, in those cases, you know, the, the person almost always gets charged and prosecuted, usually convicted. And, you know, you have to kind of think about put you put yourself in that person's shoes. So let's say let's let's assume the worst. Let's say a guy like Corey May uh, decided. He knew that they were cops, and for whatever reason, I think he had like a burnt roach in his apartment right you know he he was a recreational pot smoker, but nothing it would have gotten him a fifty dollar fine under the circumstances so you know you could you could i guess you could say that this guy was worried about that fifty dollar fine, and so he decided to take on a heavily knowingly take on a heavily armed team of police officers, shoot and kill just one of them, and then surrender with bullets still left in the gun. You know that doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Uh, I think the more you know, intuitive thing is that he didn't know they were the police, and as soon as he realized what that they were, he he surrendered. Um, and that's, I think, you know, I've talked to sort of, uh, I interviewed a lot of police officers for the book, and a lot of the older generation uh, of police officers said, you know, had told me that, including uh, the the former police chief in Washington D.C. in the in the seventies when the no-knock raid was became the Nixon administration had made it sort of a national policy. Um, but they said, you know, people who even people in the drug trade, even when you have the right place, and and you have a known drug dealer, um, nobody goes in the drug trade to kill cops, right? They, they know that if you kill a cop, you're, you're going to be lucky to survive the next few seconds. And, and if you do, you're, you're probably going to go to prison for a long time. And you may probably go to death row if you're in a death penalty state. So even when you know, a drug dealer shoots back at the police, it's usually because they think that they're being raided by another drug dealer. Because, um, you know, there's no there's no reason for them to take on a heavily armed group of police, because that that's not going to end well for them. Um, But, you know, the problem is the drug wars fought with dirty information, it's fought with information from comp- confidential sources, it's sometimes rumors, anonymous tips. Uh, and that's what these raids are being conducted upon. And so they often don't, you know get the wrong they, they do get the wrong house um we've seen in chicago there have been a just stream of stories for the last four or five years about chicago pd uh narcotic team that's raiding the wrong house the most recent case the city just settled for several million dollars with this woman who was uh naked and was pulled out of her shower and handcuffed naked while the police searched her home and they, they had the wrong house um, they're just I mean, I can't even begin to tell you I used to document on my blog, you know a few of these cases every week. I can't even tell you how many times it's happened. um you know, fortunately, not all of them end in tragedy with someone dying, but you know it's a lot of trauma. it's uh, to have the police break into your home and throw you on the floor and put po- put a gun into your head uh, over you know what's usually some sort of drug crime uh, is uh, it's a very traumatic experience and and I think it is antithetical to a Philosophy that believes that you have a right to de- to, to self defense, a right to have armed guns in your home to defend your home, because the police can do this sort of with impunity. Um, and if they even, you know, if they often get the wrong address because they're doing it on, inf- on bad information, and you do, you're caught in one of those situations, and you do what any person who wants to defend their home would do in any other circumstance. You know that that could get you killed, uh, you know, that could get you arrested, that could get you in prison. Um, and so if you have this right, but you, but you're not allowed to exercise it because the police are engaging in this reckless policy, uh, that puts you at risk. If you exercise that right, then I would argue that, you know, you really don't have that
0: right. Mm. Right. And so, so that's obviously the, uh, the civilian side argument or the the civil rights side argument for why these tactics are, are, um, inappropriate or, or on balance, over overused, I guess, is, is the right term here. But, but right. uh, I, you know, certainly from the law enforcement side of things, you could make the inverse argument here, right? There's, uh, as you alluded to earlier, there's 46% of Americans now report having a gun in the home. And so you'll hear people talk about uh, how that just being just that level of um, uh, an armed populace creates a higher risk for law enforcement. They never know who might have a gun who they're trying to arrest. You're going into someone's home um, or going in to arrest a suspect in a, in a criminal, uh, especially a violent crime, is dangerous, sure. right? And so they, these tactics are often justified as keeping officers safe. I, but in your writings, especially the piece you wrote for the post about Amir Locke, which people can um, go and read as well, you argue that that's not, it's not proven and, um, and, and that uh, even if it was the, the way it's used now wouldn't be justified. Is that right? Well, so,
2: you know, I don't think anybody would argue that the police should not be allowed to force their way into a home. If somebody's life is in imminent danger, if you've got somebody who's threatening to kill someone, uh, somebody's taking hostages, you have an active shooter situation, right? The law, but the law is always allowed for mm-hmm. that. You know, anytime the police have this type of emergency, exigent circumstance, they're allowed to go into a private residence. The whole reason why you need a no-knock warrant is because there isn't anyone's life in danger, right? It's, it's sort of premeditated. Mm-hmm. It's, they're saying, we need to get in before this person can you know, flush their drug supply, or we need to get it, you know, because this... If the person presented an imminent risk to someone else's life, the police could go in immediately. Um, The reason why they get these warrants is because they want to preserve evidence. They want to get in there quickly and they want to preserve their arrest, right? Um, It's not even necessarily about, you know, they're worried about these drugs getting on the street, um, you know, because if that was the case, by the time they're flushed, they're off, right? That that, that supply is off the street. uh, they want to get in, and they want to be, be sure that they have they have enough evidence to make an arrest. And you know, so I would, you know, I would argue that if if well, let me back up a little bit. There there are a couple more points I think that are worth making. One is um, when the police actually believe that somebody is dangerous and a threat to law enforcement, they often don't go in sort of guns blazing in the middle of the night. Uh, they get more creative. Um, one example I give in my book is Whitey Ford, right? Or Whitey Ford, I'm sorry, Whitey Bulger, <laughs> the, uh, the the notorious Boston mobster who, you know, had a couple dozen possible alleged homicides to his name, you know, was getting old. Uh, if ever was somebody who's gonna go down in sort of a blaze of glory, uh, it would be Whitey Bulger. And so when they found him, Uh, What did they do? Well, they didn't conduct a no knock raid on his house in the middle of the night. What they did is they they discovered, they did some research and they discovered that he had a a storage locker in his apartment complex. And so they called and said someone had broken into a storage locker and they needed to come down and sign some papers. So they came down and signed some papers and they arrested him. Um, And, you know, that's, you know, the police tend to get creative when they're dealing with actually dangerous people because it's safer for them that way. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, when you have somebody, you don't want to force a confrontation with somebody who's going, you know, has a good chance of shooting back. Um, one of the more telling things that came out of the Brianna Taylor case, uh, was that there was a, uh, a master student in criminology who was embedded with the Louisville police department for, I think it was like six months or so. And he wrote a paper based on this. And so he was on a lot of these raids. And what he said was he observed that a lot of these raids, which were supposed to be knock and announce raids, or the police are supposed to give the people time to come to the door and let them in peacefully, the police basically announced themselves as the battering ram is hitting the door, right? So they, they thought that they were technically complying with the knock and announce requirement. They weren't. They weren't under the law, and they weren't under any sort of practical, reasonable, rational interpretation of the knock and announce rule. They were. Those were illegal no-knock raids that they were conducting. But when really, and that's happened, I mean, I've, we found this all over the country, that 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 police just sort of announce as as the battering ram hits the door. But the really interesting thing that this this student found when he was embedded with them is that when they were facing an actual dangerous suspect as opposed to a drug suspect, when they're facing somebody, when they're trying to arrest somebody for, you know, who was a suspect for murder, um, the head of the SWAT team would say, We really need to make sure we not get announced this time. And the reason why is because they when they were afraid that somebody was actually going to shoot back, they wanted to make sure that they knew that they were the police, that they that they were because those people you know they didn't want to have the, the kind of um, uh, you know the the mistaken identity that can ha- happen during these raids and I think that's that's pretty telling that when they have an actual dangerous person uh, they want them to know that they're the police whereas when it's sort of a low- level drug mm-hmm. offender they kind of go in you know kicking doors down and, and do what they can to kind of take them off guard
0: mm-hmm. That's um, interesting so, so you, you know I think so you don't uh, really buy the idea at all that this is in the interest of officer safety these sort of raids um you think that it's more evidence um I, collection and i don't i don't think it
2: protects the officers i think it puts the officers at more risk because again you are eliciting a very primitive response in people when you break down their door and you wake them up in the middle of the night with armed men pointing guns at them you know it takes a while to register what's going on when you wake up from a deep sleep right and I'll, and, and no matter how many times they yell police um you know if you're wake up if you're woken up in the middle of the night to armed men coming in and pointing their guns at your family you know even if they say they're the police even if they're wearing a badge like how do you know that you don't know that's true but it also is going to take you a few seconds to sort of realize that and for that to register mentally uh, and you know you're going to have all sorts of adrenaline pumping you're going to be a little bit groggy uh, so yeah i mean i've i've argued for a long time that i think these tactics act, actually make things more dangerous for for police particularly when it's this kind of premeditated no knock raid, you know, I, I will say when you have an active shooter situation, you know, of course, by all means, the police need to get in as quickly as possible and, and try to control the situation. Uh, but when you're dealing with even even a suspect in a violent crime, um, you know, I think, you know, you can wait until they're coming or going, unless you're, you know, unless you're afraid they're going to commit a crime imminently. Um, you wait till they're coming or going, or you can do what they call a surrounding call out, which is where they, they, they bring a, a large battalion of officers they get on a megaphone and they tell the person they're surrounded and they give them a chance to come out peacefully um and you know i've talked to uh police uh narcotics commanders who sort of generally kind of agree with me on other things and they say well the reason why we can't do surround and call out for drug warrants is that we just have too many of them uh it takes too long to do a surround and call out when you have 15 or 20 or 30 drug warrants you're serving a week uh, it's a lot quicker to just kick doors down than to 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 do this big kind of show uh, of surrounding call, and I think that's telling. It's it's not about constitutional rights or what's safest. It's it's about what's easiest.
0: Yeah, I was think I was thinking a similar thing when you were describing the Wadi Bolger takedown. Obviously, that was uh, there's a lot of planning goes into something like that, right? Um, <clears throat> but that that's an interesting point. But uh, but so you make a delineation between obviously a, a raid where there's some sort of um, imminent. Uh, situation, a hostage situation or or uh, domestic violence or something of that sort. Um, and these pre-dawn no-knock raids that are uh, planned in advance, then there's, there's nothing actively happening inside of the the residence, right? That seems to be like the, the thing you do. You're not against police go, kicking down doors and going in in certain circumstances. To save lives. Yeah. It's, right. ju- it's just this particular tactic of of these pre-dawn raids that, and I, and I mean, I think if you watch the Amir Locke, badge cam video, this what you're describing, I mean, it, it holds up in that video. I mean, he he seems to not be he seems to not be awake immediately as they break down the door, but when they kick the couch, then he seems to wake up and not know what's happening, uh, and has a gun right, and, and so gets shot. Um,
2: and you know, people, you know, I, I've read you know on Twitter and various other people, you see people sort law enforcement, uh, pro-law enforcement people being like, well, you know, I, they, they announced themselves several times, you know, he should have known, he should have known. Well, whether or not he should have known, let's talk about, you know, l- let's look at it rationally. If you put yourself in his position, I mean, this is a guy who had no criminal record, right? Uh, he was not suspected of this particular crime. He just happened to be staying with a cousin who was suspected. Why, and you know, why in the world would that guy knowingly decide to take on a, a team of police officers and try to kill them as they're coming in, right? Again, the far more sort of rational interpretation of what we see in that video is that this guy was terrified and he didn't know what was happening and he reached for a gun because he was scared and he was trying to defend himself. I mean, that is the, the the, the really, I think the only interpretation that makes any sense at all. Yeah,
0: yeah honestly, I, I agree with that that take on, on the body cam footage in that case. Now one of the policy solutions here is eliminating these these no-knock raids which minneapolis mayor has just announced he he's he's doing i believe the tuesday this week he actually made that policy change permanent is that the proper solution in your mind or what what do you want to see happen so again you know
2: i i don't think there's any reason to get a no-knock warrant ahead of time there's just no no scenario under which that makes a lot of sense to me. If the police believe somebody's life is an in, imminent risk, they can already go in without having to get a warrant ahead of time. If there's enough time to get a warrant, then nobody's an imminent risk, right? You're, you're getting the warrant because you need to preserve evidence. Now, maybe there are some limited scenarios. Maybe you have, you know, somebody who you think is going, you know, maybe there's evidence of a murder that would help implicate somebody, you know, that, that your worry is gonna be destroyed or moved. You know, maybe there are some limited circumstances. Um, You know, I do think it's great that we're seeing jurisdictions across the country now ban uh, no-knock warrants and no-knock raids. You know, again, even those, even the bans on no-knock raids are not banning the kind of imminent danger situations, right? These are they're they're banning them in the sense of these kind of premeditated no-knock raids. Um, But uh, again, you know, a right without a remedy isn't really a right. right? So if you if you ban these no-knock raids, but uh, if the police do them anyway. Uh, there are no consequences to that, uh, then you know it doesn't really matter that you ban them, right? Because they're gonna continue to do them. Uh, so you know Virginia actually has, I think, one of the better no-knock raid policies in the country, which is that they ban no-knock raids, except in very limited circumstances. They ban nighttime raids, except in very limited circumstances. But then there's also an, enfor- an enforcement mechanism. Um, the police have to uh, knock, announce, and give the person inside the opportunity to come to the door and open it the- and let the police in peacefully. Uh, but then also the police have to be wearing body cameras and they have to record themselves conducting these raids. And, you know, one thing I found over, over the years in a lot of these cases, is that the police will, you know, either lie or they will just badly misremember what actually happened. Uh, and so without that footage, you know, the police can just say we knocked and announced. And and, you know, it's the word to get the other person inside against the police officers. I wrote about a case in Myrtle Beach where the police. Uh, shot this guy over a dozen times. Um, he actually survived, but he's you know he lost several organs and he's uh, paralyzed. Um, and this is over two fifty dollar pot sales. And the police. This is one of these multi-jurisdictional task forces. And the police. Every member of the task force said over and over again, "We knocked and announced ourselves multiple times. Waited, you know, a long time. Gave him lots of opportunities to answer." Then we finally kicked, uh, battered down the door and he fired at us and that's when we opened fire. Well, we later learned that the gun the guy had had never been fired. Um, so then the police said, well, he just pointed it at us after we knocked it and announced several times. And again, every single member of the task force said they knocked and announced multiple times. Well, the guy had a surveillance camera and when the video, and they didn't, the police didn't realize that. And so when the video came out and I've written a lot about this case, um, it's very clear from the video that there was no time for them to have knocked and announced several times that they all claimed. And then we find out in depositions that they didn't even really have a policy on knocking and announcing. There was no formal policy. Um, they weren't even aware of what the law is under Supreme Court precedent on, on the knock and announce rule. Um, and so that video, you know, without that video, uh, it would have been the police word against this guy who they, you know, portrayed as a drug dealer. Uh, and he would have been completely out of luck. Instead, he got a multi million dollar settlement, but... You know, nobody on the on the task force was was disciplined either for the raid itself or for lying about it or, or misremembering it, I guess, afterward. Um, but I guess my point here is that when you have one of these policies that has to be enforced, uh, there has to be an enforcement mechanism to it. Um, and if I could give you one more quick little spiel about why I think this is important, so the Supreme Court uh, in Wilson versus Arkansas, this case from the 1990s. They recognize that the knock and announce rule is part of the castle doctrine, which you right. mentioned. This idea that the home should be a place of peace and sanctuary, and that this doctrine goes back to English common law and you know, it goes back to the I think 14th or 15th century. Um, and you know, the government can only violate the castle doctrine uh, under very extreme circumstances. Otherwise, you have to be given the opportunity to let the peace, police in peacefully and avoid the destruction of your property and violence to your person. So the Supreme Court recognized this in this Wilson case, but they also recognize these these exigent circumstances that allow the, the police to get around that rule, right? Well, so what happens is after Wilson versus Arkansas comes down, police departments sort of compensate by saying, well, all right, one of the exigent circumstances is drug deal, is that the person is either violent or if they might dispose of evidence before we can get in, if we knock and announce, and so they started saying, "Well, all drug dealers, anybody suspected of drug crimes, is either violent or a threat to dispose of evidence." Mm. So they just started cutting and pasting that language into every single search warrant, and they just got a no-knock raid for every single drug warrant. Well, Supreme Court comes back and says, "No, you can't do that. You have to give specific uh, <clears throat> um, individual individualized evidence as to why this particular suspect." poses an exigent circumstance, right? right? Um, and if you don't do that, then 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 the no-knock rate is illegal. Unfortunately, then in 2006, the Supreme Court says, okay, well, we're not overruling Wilson of Arkansas. We're still saying that, no, you know, the knock-and-announce requirement is still law, but we're going to eliminate the uh, exclusionary rule uh, if police violate it. So basically, they took away the primary enforcement mechanism for the knock-and-announce rule, which is that if the police find contraband in your house they can't use it against you if they violate the knock and announce rule. And so the court basically said the court create, you know, recognize this right but then took away the best way to enforce it. And so what's happened since since Hudson versus Michigan in 2006 where they took out the exclusionary rule is the police have violated the knock and announce rule with impunity because there's no penalty for them for violating it. There's there's no incentive for them to uh, to to honor knock and announce, and so you get situations like Louisville where they say police as the battering ram store, the door. You get situations like in Myrtle Beach where they admitted and under, under oath that they routinely violate the knock and announce requirement because there is no punishment uh, when they do so. And so there's a huge advantage. You know, at least police think they have a huge advantage uh, to taking people by surprise and not announcing themselves. And because the Supreme Court has said we're not really going to enforce this right or we're going to take away the means of enforcing it. Um, You know, the right just doesn't exist.
0: Yeah. I mean, uh, it's interesting to think through these things, I think for a lot of gun owners, because traditionally, you know, uh, gun owners of the culture has been very uh, pro law enforcement. Um, And there are these tensions between uh, (laughs) making law enforcement as easy as possible and, Keeping your rights intact, you know that that's obviously something that's always been intention and and uh, it, it's uh, fascinating to watch. Uh, you know, you could look at some uh, a group like the National Rifle Association, right? Um, and they are no. very don't strongly get me supportive yeah. of of law enforcement, of course. And they have a lot of law enforcement right. programs. They're hesitant to critique law enforcement in these situations. Frankly, uh, I don't believe they've said anything about Amir Locke to my. Memory. Although people can correct me if I'm wrong on that point, um, they never said anything officially about Philando Castile either. Um, you know, it seems there uh, there is quite a lot of support for law enforcement. Of course, I mean, my grandfather was a, a police officer for for his entire career, and um, you know, you have this uh, affinity towards law enforcement. It's, it's certainly in certain segments of the gun rights movement. You certainly have other segments that are uh, more uh, prioritize uh, civil rights um, protections over yep. uh, the goodwill of police officers, I guess. I don't, I don't know if that's the right way to phrase this. Right. But uh, You know, how, how do you see that tension between an inherent uh, respect for law enforcement and the concern over the violation of gun rights and how do you reconcile those two things what is how do you uh you know yeah. i mean maybe you can't completely right for and this is probably true for for all civil rights uh trying to balance against the interest of law enforcement but i mean how, how do yeah. you get to that point
2: well if you go back you know you go back to the 1990s um you know the gun rights community wasn't uh, so, re- sort of reflexively pro-, pro law enforcement, right? I mean, you had uh, when the when the ATF was conducting uh, raids on gun owners, um, you had the NRA and other groups were vocally uh, speaking out against aggressive law enforcement tactics, exactly like the kinds of yes, we're talking the Jack about. Booted were, uh, the Jack
0: booted bugs comment. That was a bugs, huge political right? I mean, G- problem
2: for them, uh,
0: right? Uh, wasn't and it? you had G.
2: Gordon Liddy on this talk show telling, advising gun owners to shoot for the head, right? <laughs> when, when the police rage rouse, and I'm not advocating right. that.
0: I mean, you I'm still not, have some of that, that. rhetoric uh, in, in certain quarters, of course, about uh, right. police infringements. And it's not, uh, you know, I don't, I don't right. wanna say that there's, but, no, <laughs> but, there's no one, uh, right uh, strongly pushing back against the, these things it's just there there's clearly in, the, in our gun culture uh a priority put on respect for law enforcement in in the mainstream um uh, gun rights movement uh in large part. well
2: and i think right and i think that's i look i i have i think the nra i think the nra has actually been on the wrong side of gun rights a lot. i mean the nra opposed the Heller case all the way up until it got to the Supreme Court, right? They, they did not want that case. Um, that Heller was brought by a group of sort of libertarian gun rights activists in Washington, uh, D.C. Um, I think the NRA has become a more of a culture war organization than a gun rights organization. Um, and one, one example I always bring up is Colin Kaepernick. Um, you know, Colin Kaepernick was a gun owner. Uh, before all, you know, before all of this started happening, uh, before the whole take and knee thing, and you know, I think it was a huge missed opportunity for gun rights groups to find common ground with, uh, you know, uh, the black community, particularly black athletes. A lot of black athletes are gun owners, um, but they, while well, a lot of black athletes also, you know, uh, endure or, or have experienced racism at the end of law enforcement. And I think there was, um, you know, the NRA decided for whatever reason to make Colin Kaepernick sort of a public enemy. Uh, even though he had never said anything disparaging about gun owners or gun rights, it probably, I would imagine, supports gun rights given that he owned a gun. Uh, there's, you know, he had video on his Instagram of him got the shooting range. Um, and so I think, you know, the NRA decided, probably because, as you mentioned, they have a huge law enforcement uh, uh, contingent among its membership uh, that. You know, they were going to sort of take a side in this issue that that really had nothing to do with gun rights. And if anything, I think you know, civil rights and gun rights are one and the same. I mean, I don't think you can necessarily separate them. Particularly if you look at um, you know the history of gun control in this country and and the way it's been sort of imposed on the black community. Um So, uh, you know, I I you know I think that law enforcement, uh, I would agree that, that police officers have a have a difficult job. I agree that their job is probably made more difficult by the fact that. You know, almost half of of U.S. households do own a gun. But I also think that, you know, as a a staunch libertarian, I don't think that our rights are contingent on how convenient it is of the government to abide by them or to respect them. Right. Our rights exist no matter how difficult it is for the government to to enforce and respect those rights. Um, And so we can't just say we're going to dispense with the Fourth Amendment and the Castle Doctrine because it's just too difficult uh, to to. To have both that and the Second Amendment, right. uh, and, and it just makes it too difficult for law enforcement. Yeah, I, I understand the tension there, but I, I don't think we give up our rights because it's inconvenient.
0: Yeah, and I mean, I think there, there's a lot to this that we're not going to be able to cover in one podcast. But uh, you know, obviously, there's right. the NRA is at at butt's heads with law enforcement in certain circumstances, right? In uh, uh, more, you know, for instance, uh, constitutional carry or permitless carry, you have a lot of uh, police groups that are opposed to that for. Basically, the same same reasons. It makes it harder for police to arrest people they suspect of being criminals um, because it takes away a charge of of carrying without a permit, even if you haven't. They don't have evidence of any other crime, and so uh, you know certainly the NRA is not completely um, uh, uh, you know beholden to law enforcement's interest, and and there is obviously a very big split uh, within law enforcement itself, generally between uh, like big city, um, law enforcement yep. groups and more rural, like sheriff's groups. Uh, you see that too, there's a huge cultural difference and, and their views on NRA guns and are, file officers, are hugely, yeah. hugely divergent yep. as well. So, you know, there's a lot of interesting stuff to get into. And the NRA is not the only gun rights group that is, uh, of is course. very supportive of, of law enforcement. And, and, you know, you have uh, other groups like, uh, the firearms policy coalition, for instance, which has taken a more aggressive uh, civil libertarian approach to the, the to Correct. law enforcement. So, uh, you know, there, there's a myriad of of different uh, <laughs> issues at play that Absolutely. we can't get into completely because the, one other thing I wanted to ask you about quickly here um, is uh, some of the, the other area that you focus on besides uh, law enforcement and policing is also criminal justice. And we've actually yep. seen just recently sort of the collapse of, um, using uh, uh, ballistics matching in in, the, in court, at least the scientific backing of that has been drawn into serious question. You wrote about this at the Daily Beast earlier this year. Can you talk a little bit about, about that issue as well?
2: Right. Yeah, so for a long time, the FBI has claimed, and then, and then other ballistics experts, particularly those trained by the FBI, have claimed that they can take a, a gun found at a or excuse me, a bullet found at a crime scene and match it to a specific gun based on the the markings on the bullet that are left by the barrel of the gun. And for years, decades really, they've they've claimed to be able to match these, match a specific bullet to a specific gun and claim on the witness stand that this gun and only this gun could have fired this bullet because of these these marks, which can often be microscopic. Um, And it's always been suspect because anytime you're gonna make a claim like that, you have to know the, the frequency with which those marks are going to occur in the entire population of all bullets fired by all guns, right? So if you look at DNA, for example, which is a forensic technology that, that actually came from science and wasn't developed in a, a police setting or law enforcement setting. Um, with DNA, when it comes to DNA markers, we can we know how frequently each DNA marker occurs in the entire human population. And so when a DNA expert testifies on the stand, you'll rarely hear a DNA person te- expert say, uh, this blood could only have come from this person what they'll say is this blood contains these markers this person has these markers here's how often those markers occur in the human population therefore the odds of the blood coming from anyone but this person are one in you know 6.2 billion right well you can't do that with ballistics because we don't know how many guns could have possibly created these marks on this particular bullet you know there's just no way to to, to know that you can't uh, and there are people who are actually trying to 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 put databases together to get a better estimate on this. But um, you know, they're, 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 they're finding it very difficult. Um, what, you, you know, what you might be able to do is you might be able to say, there's no way that this gun, this gun could have fired this bullet. You can exclude a gun as the source right. of the marks on a particular bullet. But to say that these marks could only be been caused by this gun to the exclusion of all other guns on the planet, um, there's just no scientific evidence for that. And the scientific research that has been done has said that that's just not a conclusion you can make. And so what's happened uh, well, is,
0: it's, uh, it's interesting because it's, uh, you know, it feels very much out of CSI, right? That there's a very common right. trope yep. on that, on that show, yep. which is very a very popular show, but it, it always seemed like kind of a, uh, you know, a stretch if you think about it, because one, um, the bullets are mass produced, right? The guns right. are mass produced and, almost yep. every situation now there may be like you said you know you can eliminate based on caliber uh based on uh, perhaps the the way the barrel twists in some cases uh, um you know there, there if you have a strange gun that has a, a a twist that goes left instead of right or you know the traditional right. uh, rifling methods you know there's some things where like you said you could eliminate certain guns or you could at least narrow it down to, uh, this model of gun, but yeah, matching perfectly the bullets and especially considering what a bullet does, what happens to a bullet after it's fired. Right. After it leaves right. the gun. I right? mean, have- uh, you know, there's, there's, a, it always seemed like a pretty big stretch. Like you could exactly match this bullet to that exact one of 10 million, you know, Glock 19s that have been produced. It's, uh, so it's interesting right. to see that be One, that it's been so widely accepted. Uh, You know, this is something you write about a lot. It's sort of uh, pseudoscience that's commonly used in criminal cases uh, is even when it's not uh, really commonly used in civil cases because uh, it's not reliable, you'll still see it used in in criminal cases. And this is something that obviously has directly to do with firearms, which is what we talk about. And I think it's, it's fascinating. And now you're seeing a big pushback to it, right?
2: Well, so there's been a pushback in the scientific community and with, you know, sort of the criminal justice reform community, um, you know, ballistics matching is part of this field of friends that's called pattern matching and it's, it's um, uh, it includes, you know, bite marks, it includes uh, shoe prints, tire tread, and it all involves basically, there's no kind of computer that like you see on CSI that sort of, you know, matches things up perfectly. Right. You get that with fingerprinting, um, although uh, partial prints are, are still problematic, but, most of the time it's an expert looking at 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 two things, sometimes under a microscope, and just sort of eyeballing it and deciding whether or not it's a match right. or not. And you know that in itself is problematic. how much information they were given about the broader crime. you can have cognitive bias creep into how they're doing the matching. There have been um, uh, proficiency tests given to ballistic experts about where we know the answer and they don't, you know, it's often no better than a coin flip, uh, the results of those. Yeah, proficiency but tests. these are, these are still um, used
0: and, today, right? A lot, of, a lot of this evidence is still being so that's, used even with this pushback.
2: So that's the, yeah, that's what this article was about was that, you know, a few judges here and there are now starting to push back a little bit. And it, it's, it's, it's the most sort of uh, faint and sort of lukewarm of pushback. Basically, they're telling these experts, you can say that this gun could have fired this bullet. Uh, you can say, you know, I can't exclude this gun. All they're saying is you can't say that this gun and only this gun to the exclusion of all other guns on the planet is the only gun that could have fired this bullet. And it's driving the ballistics people crazy that they're not allowed to mm-hmm. say that. And so what i wrote about was this memo that we got from the director or the the attorney, the counsel for the crime lab of the FBI, who's basically advising ballistic experts on how to, how to get around judges who are trying to limit that their testimony in that very sort of narrow way. Uh, but even that is, is, you know, they're taking offense to the idea that they should be limited at all, but they can
0: tell. The right. Well, uh, people should absolutely go and check that piece out over at the Daily Beast uh, and your other piece at the the post. and. And also, if they're interested in your book, uh, which you said just was just reissued last year, um, just updated, where can they where can they find that?
2: Uh, anywhere, uh, Rise of the Warrior Cop is what it's called, um, and yeah, we added a few cha- uh, three chapters, and I rewrote the introduction and the conclusion to, to sort of take the narrative up through uh, basically January of of twenty twenty. So uh, it's pretty updated now, and uh, yeah, any any place you get books, it should be there. Hopefully.
0: Wonderful. All right. Well. We really appreciate you making the time to come on and talk to us uh, and give us your perspective i think it's really fascinating um so hopefully we could have you on again in the future too yeah absolutely thanks appreciate it
3: all right it's time for the weekly news update uh how are you steve i'm doing good jake how are you doing i'm doing great um got a, a big story everyone's talking about it in the news at least as of recording this that uh big shooting out in sacramento um uh, a certain senator from California made headlines uh, with her response to that shooting. And you wrote a piece about it, Steve, if you want to tell us about it.
0: Yeah, so Diane Feinstein, who's the Democratic, uh, she's the uh, senior senator from California. In response to this shooting in, in Sacramento, where six people were killed and, and 12 more were injured, she immediately called for, uh, as has become sort of uh, common now, uh, new gun control legislation at the federal level. Uh, of course she, she called for universal background checks and assault weapons ban, a ghost gun ban and magazine limit limitations. Um, but of course, uh, the, the problem with that, or the issue at hand there is that California already has all of those policies in, in place inside the state, um, and obviously they didn't stop this shooting from happening. Um, she put out this statement, of course, before also that there were any details about what had happened, really. Um, she, there were no suspects apprehended at the point. There have been now three people arrested in connection to the shooting. Two of them are uh, convicted felons, one who was uh, actually sentenced to 10 years in jail in 2018, but I guess was released early against the wishes of the the DA's office in uh, his local part of California, Uh, but obviously felon in possession charges against two of the suspects, uh, and also a machine gun charge, possession of a legal machine gun uh, against one of the suspects. So they had already broken several federal gun laws in addition to obviously a myriad of local laws against murdering people, um, to put it bluntly. Uh, and so, uh, you yeah, know, th- this is something that we've talked to, we talk about a lot in gun politics is this debate over how to stop mass shootings. And especially when they happen in places that have strict gun laws already, commonly you'll see gun control activists advocate for, uh, those same gun laws, but federalized. They, their claim is that they um, that they're being dis basically California is being disserved by their their neighbors or at least by uh, states elsewhere in the country, um, and, and so that's effectively what what Feinstein was was arguing here.
3: Yep. I mean, you saw it wasn't just limited to her. The, the president came out and made a, a statement that was similar. Um, basically reiterating the same policies that he said for the last you know, several public appearances where he's touched on guns. He just you know, yeah. lays out liability for gun makers, background checks, assault weapons ban, you know, the usual. So in, in a way, it was sort of a message, messaging discipline among Democratic politicians afterwards, because they all just said the same thing in response to the shooting before we knew details. Um, and as you pointed out, there were already several federal laws that were violated for this shooting. Um, so yeah. it wouldn't really made a difference anyway.
0: It's uh, it's always interesting because obviously a lot of Republicans will get criticism for, um, you know, the refrain of, of offering thoughts and prayers. That's uh, become is right. uh, sort of a, a default position for a lot of uh, pro-gun politicians in, in the wake of mass shootings. Uh, but now the default position from, uh, you know, gun control advocates in the wake of these shootings is to just list off their prior their policy priorities that they want. Instituted regardless of what has happened uh in the shooting. I mean, obviously, this shooting, there's there's no evidence at all that anyone involved bought a gun across state lines and then took it into this into California. Um and of course, you know, th- there's also the issue of like Nevada and uh Oregon, they have universal background check laws as well. So the direct neighbors, unless these guys were from you know, went to Arizona, which I mean is possible, but nobody has um, actually presented any evidence of that being the case. And and they wouldn't be legally allowed to buy guns in in Arizona anyway, because they were prohibited under federal law. This is where like a lot of these things uh, fall apart on under inspection. You know, this has become the default response to a mass shooting. And it doesn't matter where it takes place or what the details were, the responses we need to pass these, you know, our top priorities uh, if you're a gun control advocate. Uh, and, uh, you know, that that's the answer, even though in, the, in this case, from what we know, uh, these were, I believe also, uh, there's a report that the guns were, at least one of the guns was stolen, uh, which is another illegal. I mean, th- these guys committed probably a dozen different crimes before they even started shooting at people, uh, both federal and state crimes, right? So it's a little bit hard to believe that passing more federal gun laws would have had an effect on right. this particular shoot. And, you know, everyone's been calling this a mass shooting as well. And, uh, you know, that's another conversation we can get into real briefly here, which is like, uh, it's, it's um, not entirely clear this is a mass shooting in the sense that most people would understand that term. Because what happened in this situation was there was a, a fight outside of a nightclub at two in the morning. Um, that apparently escalated into gunfire. It sounds more like a shootout. Uh, and now it happened in a crowded area, and it sounds like there were quite a lot of innocent victims, which is horrendous. Uh, but this is different from, uh, you know, your Sandy Hook or, or Parkland type shooting, uh, But it's being labeled in the same way and, and right. bunched together, is, which has become a common thing in media as well. And, and, especially since most major media outlets changed the definition of mass shooting, uh, years ago, I mean, if you look at mother Jones, uh, which has, I think the fairest definition of what most people would understand a mass shooting as, which is like, uh, a, a public killing that, uh, where four more people are, are killed is essentially the FBI definition of mass murder, but committed with a firearm. Um, and, and one that doesn't involve, uh, you know, things like drug disputes or gang wars or, or, uh, or you know, those types of crimes, which are obviously still horrendous and tragic, but different from what most Americans understand a mass shooting to be, um, because the random nature of a mass shooting, the random public nature of it is is sort of unique in the American psyche, I think. And, and you get a lot of uh, people misled by, the way these get labeled um, because that, you know, now they they get, uh, <laughs> the argument is that one of these happens every day, but I think most people, and I think that hurts the credibility of a lot of media because most people understand intuitively that something like uh, Las, Las Vegas does not happen every day in the United States, right? I mean, uh, what are your thoughts on it?
3: Yeah, I think that's exactly right. It, not only does it hurt the credibility of, of media for people that are kind of paying attention to that distinction, but it also muddies the water for policy uh, discussions and response because, as you said, there's a very different root cause of a, a, a dispute on the corner or a dispute outside of a bar that escalates and turns into a quick act of violence versus right. someone that may, may or may not be under the radar for most of their life that suddenly just goes to a public place and starts gunning down innocent people. Both are obviously horrible. No one likes to see anyone get shot but the policy response to both of those situations is gonna be very different. And the fact that this new definition where it's just, oh, four or more people getting shot in an incident, it sort of ob- obfuscates both of those. And you don't really have a clear policy response to that because obviously they're very different responses for very different causes.
0: Yeah, I mean, we had uh, professor James Allen Fox on the show uh, right. You know, a couple months back who, who runs the database for the Associated Press uh, on mass shootings. And they, they use the a definition closer to what Mother Jones has. Um, and, you know, he said, look, it's uh, obviously tracking four or more shot is, can be a valuable uh, data to have, uh, sure. but it's uh, clearly different. Most of the shootings are very different from uh, what the average American would understand as, as a mass shooting. And that's, that's where you get into the problem. And and, uh, and and like you said, it's there's all, there. are also very different solutions to uh, sort of a random uh, uh, individual trying to kill as many people in public as they possibly can, and you know a, a fight escalating into um, um, you know deadly violence uh, or you know drug-related um, uh, killings, which which all have different you know solutions and different causes. And lumping them all together doesn't really uh, accomplish very much, I don't think. And that's where uh, you start to run into a lot of problems. And and that's when you, you know, the, the only reason, the, the only thing served, the only benefit from doing it that way is really to just push a broad agenda. Uh, because, you know, obviously, um, if you think that these policies are going to generally help with uh, preventing gun violence then you're going to want to implement them regardless of the uh instigating incident right and that's sort of the approach you're seeing with with gun control advocates and how they respond to to
3: this shooting in in Sacramento I think no I think that's right um I do want to give some media at least some media outlets a little bit of credit in this incident because you know a lot of times they'll just parrot whatever the politicians say oh we need more gun laws and they won't really air the other side. But I did at least see, I believe it was the Sacramento Bee, at least point out after some of these claims were made that, look, California already had all these laws in place, um, yeah. which I think is worth noting because a lot of people, particularly on the pro-gun side, can get a little jaded by media outlets in, the, in coverage of this stuff. But I, sure. I do think it's worthwhile to point out. You know, in this case, they at least pointed out that, hey, look, all these policies you're calling for are already the law in the state where this incident happened, um, which is good reporting, I think.
0: Yeah, and I think, it's, I think it's a necessary thing to do. I mean, like, it, I think it's difficult to write about the, what Feinstein and the president had said without noting that, sure. look, where this happened, they have exactly the policies that you're pr- sure. proposing. So, uh, you know, and like, like I said, obviously the gun control advocates have a, a counter to that, which is um, that the looser laws in other states are undermining the strict laws in California. People can make up their own minds about how convincing that argument is, Um, and it sort of, I think, also uh, undermines the idea of having strict gun laws uh, in your state, right? I mean, if they're not, uh, what's the point if if uh, if you're saying that they can't stop these these shootings because of uh, what the laws are in other states? um, You know, it's just kind of an odd uh, argument, but you know, certainly uh, there's plenty of people who find. It has more credibility and credence than I do. So that's just my personal uh insight on that particular point. But uh but yeah, so uh, you know, uh, we're gonna keep on top of this. I I think also it's important to note that none of those policies that the president or or Diane Feinstein have advocated for are going to pass in Congress anytime soon. Um it's just not going to happen. And uh, you know, depending on how the midterms go, which right now it sure looks like they're um they're they kind of go well for the republican party at this point based on polling things can change certainly but it, these policies aren't going anywhere sure anytime soon at the federal level uh and, and that's important to note too i mean this is uh, just just to give the the audience some uh some clarity on, on the actual practicality of implementing the, the things that dianne feinstein had called for but, no i think uh, that's right yeah yeah, so we'll we'll keep it up. We have actually now a, uh, another members segment, uh, which which is always my favorite segment, and uh, we're gonna head on over there now. All right, we've got another member segment this week. Uh, I'm here with member Andrew Fagel, who is a PhD in uh, American his early American history, and has studied quite uh, a lot of the early American firearms as well. Welcome to the show, Andrew. Yeah, thanks for having me, Steve. Uh, Can you tell us just a little bit more about your background for for the listeners who don't know you?
1: Yeah, so I went to graduate school uh, after college um, to study early American history. And in the process of doing so, uh, this is late uh, 20-aughts, I discovered that the field of firearms in early American history was generally understudied. And I ended up writing a dissertation on the growth of the American arms industry between the American Revolution and the War of 1812. Hmm. Uh, and from that, I've had a number of uh, publications uh, on that broad topic, uh, mostly for academic audiences.
0: Yeah, that's pr- that's pretty fascinating, right? I mean, I feel like uh, in academia, guns really are very understudied uh, and treated as something that is synonymous with, with criminal activity, right? Like you get a lot of study of, criminal use of firearms, right. uh, and a lot of writing about that. Uh, it was very similar, of course, to how th- news media treats guns as well, uh, but it's really uh, looking at such a tiny uh, piece of of the puzzle that is guns in America, right? Because most g- guns are normal and normal people use guns, as uh, Professor uh, David Yamani has, has said, another a guest we've had on previously. And there really is not a lot of focus in either news media or academia on the way people actually use guns, the history of guns. I mean, we, we had uh, another member just recently who uh, wrote a book on John Moses Browning who was able to obtain primary documents, you know, source material from his family because there really hadn't been much actual uh, historical inquiry into his life and uh, you know this was for, for a book for publication but but it's just kind of amazing how underserved it all that all really is uh, in in our academic institutions so it's interesting to you know speak to someone like you who is actually doing that kind of work what what is uh, some of the more interesting things that you've that you've uh, written about
1: well so uh, before i get to that i mean one of the reasons why i think that that's the case is that about 25 years ago, uh, you might you probably remember this, there was a book called Arming America by a historian named Michael Beliales. Hmm. And Beliales' thesis was that firearms in early American history were relatively rare. And it's only with the growth of the Industrial Revolution in the 19th century that guns become part of American culture Interesting. Uh, writ large. Uh, the problem with that book, um, and you can, it was, most historians accepted the argument and it was really in a couple of different, uh, like law journals, um, national review, where people started pointing out that, hey, some of the sources don't say what you're saying. And the book ended up being retracted by the, it won the Bancroft Prize, that got retracted. Um, he ended up resigning his position from Emory uh, University wow. over it. And it was, it was a big academic scandal um, from the early 2000s. And I think part of that Kind of, you know, who wants to engage with that kind of argument um, and with that scholarship of a massive scandal within the last, you know, 25 years mm. that ended a career. And, you know, so one of the things about that book is that he had, you know, whether it was academic malfeasance or oversight, you know, I don't know. But within the book itself, he had a lot of interesting ideas, like Native American gun culture in the uh, 17th century. And it's only recently that scholars have gone back and it's like, yeah, Native Americans developed a very robust firearms culture uh, almost as soon as there's contact with Europeans. And that develops over the course of the next 200 years. Uh, Things like that. Uh, So at least for myself, you know, I write mostly on what we might consider the you know, military industrial complex in early America. I don't really say it that that way.
0: Um, So that's how like a layman might understand it,
1: right? Something like that. (laughs) Right, so it's things like the Springfield and Harpers Ferry arsenals. Mm -hmm. uh, DuPont, uh, which we think of as a major chemical corporation now, actually started as a gunpowder uh, firm to make black powder for the federal government um, because all the other competitors in the country were using literally mortar and pestle worked by hand to make black powder for these massive contracts and they decided we're going to mechanize the process things like that
0: that's that's really incredible I mean I think there's a lot of uh, history there that just kind of goes um, un, unexplored to, to a large degree I mean I suppose the, you gave sort of an, an interesting explanation for why, why that might be in recent history but um, yeah. You know, and, and certainly, obviously people get uh, sort of pop history is driven by right. big events like the American Revolution or, you know, the big wars. You know, World War II is right. still extremely popular for history documentaries and so forth. Uh, but, uh, you know, there's so much interesting stuff in, in the, those spaces in that time period and in how it
1: really affected the development and growth of the United States, right? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, what, you know, my own particular take on it is how does the United States go from this country in 1775 that's largely dependent upon foreign sources and arms and munitions to make its revolution actually work to self-sufficiency and an exporter uh, by the War of 1812 period. Mm. And, you know, it, it ends up being that it's a real political problem that's addressed everywhere from the federal level all the way on down to local level, uh, state and local levels, um, to try to bolster American arms manufacturing country. So, yeah, it, I mean, it's a huge story of what governments were actually doing in this time period when we think of the federal government not really doing all that much. Yeah,
0: yeah, absolutely. Um, and and uh, you actually, it appears that you have. Uh, <laughs> one of these firearms from that period uh, behind you, is I that do. right?
1: Yeah, that was, uh, I bought this as a uh, present for myself a couple of years ago from, uh, I got it on auction at the Rock Island Armory. It's a model 1798, Eli Whitney um, musket, uh, probably delivered to the federal government sometime uh, in 1806, if I've got my, if I understand the uh, way the brass band uh, works on this correctly.
0: Fascinating. And so, what? What? Uh, I guess that's the War of eighteen twelve era.
1: Yeah, War of eighteen twelve era, early republic. I mean, with Eli Whitney, mm-hmm. you know, if people think of him today, it's cotton gin, right? Uh, which is one of the, one of the most important inventions in American history, uh, in terms of basically expanding the institution of slavery across the West. Uh, but Whitney did not make much money from that because it was a relatively simple design that anyone could just copy and not have to pay the patent rights. Uh he made his money making muskets for the federal government. Um well.
0: Wow. Yeah. Yeah, I mean that's where uh, there's there's all this these little interesting facts throughout American history and uh, when you're dealing with firearms, that I think people just don't know or remember anymore. Uh I mean I, I that sort of reminds me of uh the 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 ghost gun that I bought a while back from uh Uh, my local store, that was a a Sears model semi-automatic shotgun. I don't think most people who are, uh, you know, under 40 (laughs) today would know that that was such a thing. You could mail order shotguns from Sears, Um, you know, and and obviously going even further back, someone as famous as uh, Eli Whitney, who's world renowned for inventing the cotton gin. Uh, Most people would not know that he hadn't uh, an arms company that yeah. sold guns to the federal government. So uh, you know it's pretty amazing the way that firearms are intertwined with uh, really all sorts of major American institutions and and people throughout history.
1: Absolutely. Yeah.
0: A- and you you've uh, uh, I mean uh, this reminds me a lot too of uh, when we had uh, Ian McCollum from Forgotten Weapons already. Oh, yeah. right? He's he's very into um, the history of firearms. Although it seems like you you go. Perhaps an era further back than he does
1: you know a, a yeah lot of his stuff I mean my uh my one claim to fame and is that Ian McCollum based his um, video on the chambers machine gun off of an article I wrote on the history of it hmm. um, so that's like oh I wrote something that someone took, popularized on YouTube, has 500,000 views. You know, most <laughs> academics are happy if 10 people read their article. Can right. uh, <laughs> well, so you like, give
0: us a quick rundown of what the Chamber's Machine Yeah. Has?
1: So this was a, what's described as a superimposed load firearm, where the general idea is if you have a barrel, instead of just having one bullet at the back of it firing out, you'd have a number of bullets with black powder charges spaced out. Hmm. And you'd fire from the front, bullet would leave, and then the next chamber in the round would be ignited. That would go out kind of like a Roman candle. Um, And people had been experimenting with superimposed loads ever since the early history of firearms. Um, And so what this was, uh, Chambers, he, probably worked with this guy named Joseph Belton uh, in Pennsylvania during the American Revolution, where they were trying to introduce this idea of let's outfit people with these superimposed load firearms uh, in the Revolution. That really doesn't get anywhere. Uh, Chambers brings this idea up again in the early 1790s, um, and it's in the War of 1812 that the US Navy actually adopts uh, some of his weapons, Mm. Um, one of which it looks like a Gatling gun, Um, it's like seven barrels, each one is loaded with you know, some, you know, forty to fifty shots, wow. and the idea was that this thing was going fi- to start firing, and it's going to go for a couple of minutes uh, until it uh, until it fires all of its bullets. Um, the problem with this, as you might imagine, is that there's a lot that can go wrong. In <laughs> you know, I think it's 224 shots in one of these things. Right. Um, so there's reports at the time of These guns, you know, probably more dangerous to the user uh, than to the person standing in front. But when they work, they work great. uh, I
0: bet. I mean, it sounds like, uh, what it sounds like to me is um, is, uh, when a round gets stuck in the barrel of a gun. You just keep putting more rounds behind it. That sounds like a pipe bomb.
1: (laughs) Yeah, exactly. There's One of the the reports I have is there's these... uh, the British capture a couple of examples from the Navy on the Great Lakes, and someone tries to like load and fire it, and there's the newspaper account of his arm getting blown off uh, when he tries to shoot at. So, you know, kind of horrible stuff, but there's also the reports of some of the demonstrations under controlled circumstances uh, where apparently the French ambassador to the United States, you know, we're gonna order these right away. These are amazing, let's get them to Napoleon. One condition: under no circumstances can you sell it to the Russians.
0: Hmm. Um, Things like that. Well, we could use that rule again today, I suppose. But uh, oh, yeah. But uh, yeah, I mean, this is another thing about guns: is the the other aspect of why so many people are are interested in firearms is this mechanical aspect, the development history of firearms. It's all very fascinating. Mm -hmm. Uh, Yeah. Similar reasons why people are into you know cars, um, or any number of other things, architectures, something, you know, something along those lines, and it's another area that just doesn't get talked about a lot, and that's why you know that's why something like what Ian uh, is doing is so popular. Um, right. but, but yeah. Uh, so how how did you come across the reload? What's uh, what's your story there for becoming a member?
1: Yeah, I mean, a co- I mean, a couple of things. I think I came across you on social media. Um, at one point in time, um, like right when the site was first being launched, mm. and I think I ended up signing up sometime in the summer of 2021, um, like right right after, right after the hard launch. Um, nice. Yeah. And at least for why I did it, I mean, there's a most of the reporting on firearms that was out there tended to be from one extreme or the other mm, and yeah. you know it's i think i think guns are really important for America, understanding american history and i think that they're also really important for understanding our own contemporary world um, that we live in and so well i think it's perfectly fine and i mean i have my own biases um and that we all do um it's the importance of being dispassionate and trying to present all sides and have conversations with all sorts of people that was, shall we say, sorely missing in a lot of online reporting on firearms Um, and even in print reporting. So, you know, that's the thing that I honestly, I like the most about the reload. Um,
0: Well, thank you. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's a big part of what we try to do. I mean, this, this episode of the podcast, we've got Radley Balko from the Washington post who's uh, yeah, uh, you know, a, a unique perspective. He's not necessarily somebody you're going to find on uh, a lot of gun uh,
1: podcasts. Yeah, his gr- He's great. Yeah. Rise of the Warrior Cop and the uh, the County Dentist um, on the bite mark evidence. Mm-hmm. I mean, that book is phenomenal.
0: Yeah. And so, I mean, uh, we try to bring in all kinds of different forces. We've had uh, people from gun control groups. We've had people from gun rights groups. We've had All sorts of advocates. We've had, I tried mostly to bring on experts who can speak to whatever's, you know, in the news at the time. But, but, uh, yeah, I just think it's, uh, important to be informed and, uh, be fair and serious when you're talking about this subject, because it's something that affects really everyone in the country, even if you're not a gun owner. And, you know, for we now have surveys that show 46% of Americans report having a gun in the home. That's the latest. Uh, number out of the University of Chicago, but you know, even if you don't, even if you're not one of those people, you're likely affected in some way by firearms and even just by living in the United States, as you have yep. uh, discussed here on on this segment of the show, like it's, it was an important part of the historical development of this country too. And it's something that rarely gets looked at as uh, in, 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 a, in a light this way, like if, from the perspective that we're trying to do and that's why i thought it was important to to found the reload and i'm yeah. glad that that uh you know it, it's something other people value as well yeah um, and it, look hey i really appreciate you coming on the show to, to talk a little bit about your background um uh, you know it's always fascinating to meet people who are actual reload members and see the diversity of. Uh, uh, what's out there in in our little community that we've started to build here it's been almost a year um, I, i'm hoping we can grow and expand from here uh you know we've we've things have gone pretty well we've broken a lot of important stories we've had a variety of different points of view represented on this show uh, and on the site itself but I'm hoping we can do even more in the next year and and beyond that for uh, for our readers and for our members. But uh, if you want to become a member today, uh, you want to be on the the podcast and do your uh, have your own member segment, you know, head over to thereload.com and pick up a membership today. We'll we'll bring on hopefully many more members in the future. I really enjoy getting to know you guys, and uh, you know that's it for this week's episode. But we'll see you guys again next week.